I'm sure you've all had the experience of coming out of a motion picture theater and saying to yourselves afterwards, you know, I've had more interesting things happen to me than happen to those characters in that picture. My life is much more interesting. Well, you know something? You're right. The most hilarious comedy, the most gripping drama, the most suspenseful disasters, they don't happen on the movie screen. They happen in my backyard and yours. Thank you. Thank you so much. So please, just remember two simple words and everything will be perfect. Be yourselves. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, and very close to complete personality disintegration, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, Nakia and I are sitting down for one of the forgotten cornerstones of modern American comedy, Albert Brooks's Real Life from 1979. But Nakia, before we do that, I thought we would, for reasons that will become clear talk a little bit about reality TV. Mm -hmm. Uh, The inspiration for real life was a documentary series called An American Family, which it was a 12-part documentary series that aired on PBS over three months in 1973. And it's considered really the first reality TV show on American television. It chronicles the life of an upper-middle-class white family in Santa Barbara, California. Oh, my God. I think I saw, like, a film adaptation of it. With Tim Robbins? Yeah, Yeah, that was about the making of that documentary. Okay. So, as William Yardley wrote in the obituary of the father of that family, Bill Loud, in 2018, an American family shocked American families. Aired with the imprimatur of public broadcasting, it was portrayed as sociological exploration, not exploitation. And although many people found it irresistible, it was also hard to watch. It showed Mr. Loud's wife, Pat, bluntly discussing his adultery with her brother and sister-in-law. It showed her telling her husband, I think this happened about eight episodes in, to move out. Mm. Uh, And they subsequently got divorced. Yeah, they had a rough marriage. It captured the Loud's oldest son, Lance, living an openly gay life in New York. Startling images for many people at the time. We spent 20 years building a family, and they only selected the negative, bizarre, and sensational stuff, Mr. Loud said in an interview shortly after the show aired. But I'm really grateful it was a very gratifying experience. Uh, That opinion may not have been genuine. Mm -hmm. The Loud family became the first people to experience how exposing their private lives to the TV viewing public could destroy them. As Lori Weiner writes in The New Yorker, when an American family began its broadcast in January 1973, the Loud family was devastated by the public's response. One critic called the family affluent zombies. (laughs) 
and the Times described Lance Loud, the gay son, as camping and queening about like a pathetic court jester, a Goya-esque emotional dwarf. Wow. Uh, Gilbert, the filmmaker, remembers getting a late-night phone call from Pat, the mother, after she had read the first of many scathing articles that would be written about her family. Pat was screaming, Gilbert said. She'd taken a below-the-belt hit and it hurt. That right there was the beginning of my own confusion. What have I done? What did I do? He paused. I've never resolved it. I didn't know what I had wrought. I still don't. In the sort of film adaptation of, I think, Tony Soprano plays the... The filmmaker, the filmmaker, And he is definitely portrayed as, you know, it's exploitative. Like, he knows that he's exploiting this family, and he knows what he has to do to sort of get ratings. And Because I think there's an initial conversation of, like, when it first starts, that it's too boring. Right. It's not enough to just watch people (laughs) just live there. Because it is. Because it's boring. Because real life is boring. That's why we watch television. And so you have to sort of start to find those ways where you can do that sort of heightened reality thing and really sort of play on the drama of it. Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, he says, I don't, I didn't know what I had wrought. What he had wrought, of course, was the era of reality mm-hmm. television. The 70s saw several imitations of an American family, and it set the wheels in motion, I think, for the, you know, real-life freak show of stuff like, this is before your time, but Real People, and That's Incredible. These were network shows that focused on real people. And it would be about 20 years before this bomb would really explode in the form of The Real World, which began airing in 1992. Mm -hmm. Then in the late 90s, shows like Survivor and Big Brother added the element of competition, and the reality wave was cresting in full, producing massive hits for a fraction of the budget that scripted shows cost. Mm -hmm. So... You, I know, you were right in the zone for the real world yeah. in the early 90s. Yeah. What was what was your experience with that? Uh, so Real World New York, which was the first season, was in 1992. And I was on board immediately. Uh, <laughs> you were what, about 10, 12 years old then, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. And so in preparation for this podcast, I was just sort of thinking about my relationship to, to reality TV. And for about eight years or so, from like 92 to 2000, my exposure to reality television was just the real world. Like mm-hmm. I watched a good you, you watched You watched all the first like eight seasons? I watched like the first eight seasons. And I didn't think I had watched that much. But when I went back to look, I was like, oh, no, yeah, I watched that season. I watched that season. I watched that season. <laughs> And I, there are moments from each season that have become sort of, I think, a part of my generation's sort of cultural lexicon. Mm-hmm. Um, so New York, everybody knows about the argument that Kevin and Julie get into. Oh, he slaps her, doesn't he? No, no he doesn't that slap a her. One? No, okay. that's, a, that's a different one. Okay, <laughs> that's sorry. a different black man and white woman. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll get to that one. <laughs> so Kevin and Julie, Kevin was African-American. Julie's a white girl. She was Southern. And her whole sort of quote unquote character was that she was naive. And this was sort of her first time coming into contact with a lot of different things. Uh-huh. And they get into this debate about race and it becomes a, a shouting match. And it is portrayed as like Kevin becomes this sort of threatening black man who's yelling at this innocent white right. woman about race. But my takeaway from that was he's like yelling, race plus power equals racism. And it was just this really wonderful sort of socio-political moment on this, like an MTV show. Like it wasn't, it was a very odd sort of thing. And then Heather B., who was also, a, who was a black woman, um, was in the house as well. And she had a beeper because you have beepers in the 90s. And her beeper went off one day and Julie was like, why do you have a beeper? Are you a drug dealer? And so you have this, right? <laughs> these people. So it really was this sort of experiment of what happens when you put strangers in a house and they have to interact with each other. 
and having these really authentic moments and tensions and them having to like deal with it. Uh, so you're saying it was about what happens when people stop being polite <laughs> and, and start. start getting real. <laughs> <laughs> and it was good. Then you had L.A., which was Tammy and David, and there was this whole instance of him ripping the covers off of her while she was in bed and she was basically naked. Uh-huh. And it's starting out as a joke and then quickly turning into a discussion about sexual harassment and sexual assault. Uh-huh. And her, the, the sort of memification of that, she says something like, it wasn't not funny! And that's it's become like this thing. And so <laughs> it was really... And then San Francisco, you had Puck and Pedro, and they have become sort See, of, that's the only season I'm sure I watched yeah, in full. Yeah. And then I think I went back and watched some of the earlier ones but i think that was probably the most successful and famous season it was well pedro i mean that was pedro had his hiv HIV and that was huge i mean he was was the first person on television dealing with hiv yeah and it was and it wasn't exploitative and it really went on there for, for a purpose, yes, he absolutely America did. He absolutely HIV. did. Um, Pedro was very conscious about using that platform to shine a light on sort of folks living with HIV, being a gay man, and Puck was just a and, right. obnoxious <laughs> asshole. And then, <laughs> as if the producers weren't happy enough with that, it's like, okay, so what can we do to counter that? We're going to put Puck, right, who was obnoxious just, in every way a human being can be obnoxious for no reason, just just to be. And then we had London. I loved London. And then so after London, there was obviously a sort of internal reevaluation of the show where people were like, okay, it's boring just sitting sort of watching these people live in a house because up till this point, everyone was just living their normal lives and everybody had different jobs and Mm -hmm. they would sort of come back to the house whenever or they were just chilling and hanging out on the couch. Like it wasn't super exciting. And so then after London, they decided, okay, now the house has to have a job. Like everybody's going to be working at this same place and that so... Right. So you see things starting to get more... Manipulated and more controlled. Right. And by then the it's producers. like, oh, now we have hot tubs. Oh, now we have more drinks. Oh, yeah. now. We- <laughs> and so it just. I don't, is that show even still on? I think it is. The latest that I checked in, they did a season in Las Vegas. And so I was like, oh, well, let me check this out because I'm from Las Vegas. And it was trashy. And just, it yeah. really was like everything that w- they were living in. I think the Palms Hotel. Like it was everything bad that people think when I say I'm from Las Vegas, that's what's in their head. And it's like, I, I mean, I think, I think there's a couple things that happen. I mean, I think obviously what you were saying before about the producers realizing real life is boring. Right. We need to goose the drama. We need to create tension and conflict. All of that happens on every reality Mm -hmm. show. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think specifically with the real world, since it was one of the first ones, I think what happens is once you get four or five seasons in, then you're getting people who are aware of the show, aware of what works on the show, what doesn't work on the show, how they become stars. How to play to the camera. Coming out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so... And it becomes its own cottage industry. Like a lot of these people that were on Real World, there were then spinoffs of like Road Rules and then Real World Road Rules (laughs) Challenge. And so then you just, that just becomes your career. You are a reality yeah. TV star, and that is your entire identity. Your your whole personhood is like your character on these different sort of shows. And you see on shows we still watch now, people just being assholes mm-hmm. for airtime. Mm-hmm. That that's that's their entire goal. Yeah, absolutely. So did you, when you were first watching it, how much did you, how much were you aware of the artificiality, or were you like, oh my god, this is real life, this is real drama? Um, that's a good question. I think. 
so I dipped out after New Orleans. New Orleans was the last one that I watched. That was the one that aired in 2000. And I barely remember anything about that except the black dude, David, sang this really corny ass song. It was like, come on, be my baby tonight. It was really, I don't even remember what the context <laughs> of it was. But it felt like you were getting people who, who had been sort of raised on that, mm-hmm. that medium. And so we're a little bit more prepared to be on camera and like what that would mean. Right. But I mean, I would say at least up through London, it felt authentic and it felt like these were people who just sort of volunteered to have us, you know, spy on their lives a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And it didn't feel as sort of contrived and manipulated and it didn't feel like people were going in with these sort of created personas that they were trying to sort of promote. And I think just as an audience, I think we didn't have the language right. to recognize. When we were being... Like, you know, now every show you watch, at some point you end up talking about the villain edit. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, they are getting the villain edit. Yeah. That, you know, the producers are very clearly positioning them to be the bad guy yeah. in this. The person we can hate right. and enjoy hating. That kind of stuff. Which I think is why shows like um, The Great British Bake Off... Are so sort of cleansing. Oh my! It's in that it's, way. Yeah, it's it just is. Like, it's such a relief. It is reality television, but these people—they're so guileless, <laughs> and they just want to make good cake and good bread. And, <laughs> and they're nice to and each other nice and to polite each other. to each other. And like the drama is someone used someone else's custard up by accident. Right. And it's just like oh god. And uh, but and even the competition—they're not really competing no. with each other. They're just like I want to make. They a good just want to make good shit, <laughs> right? And it's so nice, and it doesn't seem—it's not manipulative manipulated in that way and and of course it is a show and there's editing and whatever but you don't walk away feeling gross right or or that you're yeah it's just like you're just watching people enjoy something that they love and be kind (laughs) to each other so so what other reality shows have you have you enjoyed Um, or enjoyed not enjoying which I think is how a lot of people watch. Yeah, I think it's shows. a hate watch. Like, yeah. oh, this is trash. This I is actually so like the Big Brother and the Survivor stuff. I missed all of that. Like, I just yeah. was never into. I watched any of a that. couple seasons of Survivor, and yeah. then it just started feeling like it was just the same show over yeah. and over and over again. I was really into America's Next Top Model for a while, like pretty much all through college. Oh yeah, so you were into. I that was show. super and into then America's I, Next you got Top me Model. Into it, I know. And I, that <laughs> is just a thing that should never have happened. I know it was so good, but again, it's one of those shows where like it was really good for a moment, and then it became something else and just stopped. <laughs> um, being like good. I'm sitting there having opinions about smizing, right? And that is just not something that but ever should have happened. Was a like moment my life has gone wrong in some perfect, way. Where it was like we were all. Rude for you. <laughs> um, so that was probably my next reality show uh-huh. love. And then after that was Project Runway, which right. I still Which we watch. still watch. Yeah. And again, with Project Runway, it's more about, I like seeing, watching people design and create yeah. and, you know, exercise their craft. And I'm less interested in the actual, in the personal drama bullshit of it. Well, that's, I think most of the shows you and I still watch are like that. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's Project Runway, it's Top Chef, mm-hmm. um, Face Off, which I think is done yeah, but that was on sci-fi yeah. that was like project runway with monster prosthetics and, and face, <laughs> face, <laughs> you know, face art and stuff it was very cool actually i, I like that show a lot and then we have rupaul and then well what i was going to say is, Which is those all drama. The, right those <laughs> shows are less about the interpersonal yes. drama sometimes some comes up right and especially project runway started getting soapier and yeah, soapier yeah. and creating more drama putting people in the workroom who didn't really belong there right but they didn't they have a ton of drama. talent but they were television like those fucking twins oh, a couple seasons ago 
show. Terrible. But then RuPaul is the other one we still watch, mm-hmm. and that is about manufactured drama. Well, because RuPaul is just a send up of all of the of the reality shows. Yeah. Like it's America's Next Top Model, it's Project Runway, it's Top Show. Like every reality show that came before it informs the artifice of RuPaul. Like the point of it is mm-hmm. that it's this ridiculous sort of funhouse mirror, right? About yeah. reality shows. He's very self aware. Very about aware the of what it is, right? And using it as a platform to sort of to elevate the artistry of drag. But what's cool about it is the way that it has sort of made something that was sort of underground and subversive and transgressive into this sort of mainstream thing. Yes. Like there's now like drag Comic-Con thing, basically. <laughs> and there's, again, this sort of cottage industry of creating these stars out of these drag queens in a way that probably was unthinkable 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So I have a lot of respect for RuPaul's Drag Race and the All-Stars. Okay, do we actually think there's any value to this whatsoever? To reality television? Yes. I mean, I don't know. I I sort of see it as everything else. Like, is there a value to social media? Yes, but it's also can be deleterious to who (laughs) we are as human (laughs) beings. But, you know, Twitter was also the way that, like... The Arab Spring rose to sure. mainstream consciousness. So, so it's like that balance. So you you have Pedro, and that's an important story. And it's important to have a platform where that story was elevated. To, to name the one to, example I, I can But think I'm not of. saying that that's... I don't think that's the only one. So speaking specifically of real world, we had a number of... Pedro was the first, but there were a lot of sort of... This is someone's first time living with someone who was gay or LGBTQ or whatever. This was the first time someone was living with someone of a different race or of mm-hmm. a different religion. And at least... For for a few seasons, they were able to sort of have those relationships authentically, and they weren't always perfect. Like it was messy because that shit is me- like working through that is messy, and making those connections is messy. So I do think that there can be value to it. Now, whether or not we've sort of gone through the looking glass to the point where we're also aware of the artifice of it and what it is, can it still be valuable? I think that may be a question. But I guess I guess I feel like the looking glass is pretty built into the format. I mean, yeah. like that American Family, like you said. Yeah. That was the first one, and it was still exploitative, Mm -hmm. and the guy making it was still conscious of having to create drama and all of that. Yeah. The artifice is built in. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how possible it it even is to show anything authentic. I mean, even the real world, yeah, you might have gotten useful conversations out of Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But just putting those people together and putting them in a house where they're not working, they are just hanging out in this big mansion that they... It was already an artificial situation. Right, it's it's already not the real world. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very true. But I don't... I don't know that that automatically discounts its value, at least initially. I am not saying that that is still the case. Now, I, I have not watched Real World in a very long time. I don't watch Survivor. I don't watch The Bachelor or Big Brother or any of that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so I, I don't know a lot of what that looks like now. But I think there was a time where it was at least maybe sparking interesting, important conversations when we didn't have the language for a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I would like to think that we are a bit more sophisticated and nuanced at this point, just because we've sort of gone through all this. So it also becomes like, what else is there left to discover in those spaces? Right. And so maybe now it all is about just sort of entertainment. I think one of my breaking points with the social relevance thing, I watched a couple seasons of what's the Amazing Race. I never watched that one. Okay, yeah. so that's 
couples are like competing, running all over the world. It's like treasure map or something, right? Right. Yeah. Finding clues yeah. and each clue leads to the next clue mm-hmm. and they have to travel and get there on time and get there ahead of the other couples and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But there was one episode, and I want to say America's Next Top Model did something similar, but there was one episode where the clue was in Nelson Mandela's prison cell. Ooh. And, you know, it was, it was like, oh, this is going to be so powerful going to Nelson Mandela's prison cell. And the fucking couple's like ran in, grabbed the clue, run out. Didn't and take they a spent moment like 30 to seconds in Nelson Mandela's <laughs> prison cell yeah. and then run out. And it's like, okay, really? That's. Well, yeah. You, I mean, that's not something you want to encounter on a, a race <laughs> or a scavenger hunt, like, unless you're going to spend time and like reflect on it. I actually, did, they did go to they did go to Nelson Cell yeah, on uh, America's I, I, I Next Top Model, did. and there was it was a weird thing of like there was a black girl there, and I think she was just like the like the white models couldn't understand like how impactful it was. Or something. It was something I don't know, but they did do that. That's, yeah, I totally <laughs> forgot they. <did> that. Um, <laughs> but at least with that, they went to experience right that space and reflect on right, it. right. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, let's let's move on to, to this movie uh, where I think a lot of these same themes are going to be mm-hmm. are going to come up. Hello, I'm Albert Brooks. I've just completed a motion picture so exciting that the following announcement will be presented in 3D, so you can literally feel the excitement. You will find special glasses under each of your seats. Put them on now, won't you? Oh, if you happen to be in a theater that has no glasses, don't worry. You can share in the fun, too. Simply turn to the person you're sitting next to and borrow a piece of red and blue cellophane. Then put one over each eye like this. Got it? Good. Now we're all ready to enter into the world of 3D. Well, hello again. A little different, isn't it? Does it scare you? (laughs) Oh, come back, come back. I'm just having some fun. I didn't mean to scare you. I like you. That's why I want to tell you about a new movie called Real Life. Real Life tells the story of what happens when a real family's life is turned into a major motion picture. That family could have been you. Or you. Or you. Okay, so let's start by talking about Albert Brooks, who we, just a few months ago, we watched uh, Broadcast News. Mm-hmm. And I think you liked him yeah. in that. I mean, he was tiring, but yes. I <laughs> well, the character. Him. Yes. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's actually a character he plays a yes. lot. As Darren Richmond writes in The Independent, Albert Brooks is one of the most influential but underrated figures in American comedy. Friends like Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks believe he is one of the funniest people ever to have lived, Mm -hmm. and yet he's probably best known for his acting roles in Broadcast News, Finding Nemo, (laughs) and Drive. Born in 1947 to a show business family, the son of actress Thelma Leeds and comedian Harry Einstein. His real name is, in fact, Albert Einstein. That's awesome. Necessitated a a change for professional purposes. I don't think it would. Brother of comedian Dave Einstein, who had a career as the character Super Dave Osborne, and television writer Charles Einstein. In his teenage years, the comics that hung out at his house with his parents already thought of Brooks as a comedic prodigy. Carl Reiner went on The Tonight Show, and Johnny Carson asked him to name the funniest people he knew. And Reiner said, this high school kid, his friend Harry Einstein's son, (laughs) was near the top of the list. 
Uh, a few years later, Brooks began his own career as a stand-up comic, becoming a regular on the talk shows. At one point, he was doing Johnny Carson every few weeks. Johnny thought he was a riot. He was a huge success, but he, he was developing longer and longer bits and more elaborate setups and characters. He tended to do a lot of sort of deconstructive comedy about comedy itself, very self-aware, meta, and what he really wanted to do was act. Then, as Scott Rabb wrote in a profile in Esquire, in 1974, at the age of 27, his stand-up career collapsed one night in Boston. This is something we keep talking about, is these things where people just snap one night, where he was headlining at a club. His opening act was the lavishly untalented castrato Leo Sayer. Part of Mr. Sayer's shtick was to take the stage in a clown suit, and that night the club was filled with flax from his record company, also dressed as clowns. When Albert saw this, his brain, which until that night had been an organ of such impervious genius that he rarely bothered to rehearse his bits and never even dreamed of bombing, froze and snapped. Jesus Christ, it was scary, Brooks said. I had spent years having no fear, and now all of the fear caught up with me. I stopped being a stand-up comic that moment. There were no more live shows, no television, no albums. Albert Brooks vaporized, vanished into legend. And so he began acting. Um, he actually made his debut in Martin Scorsese's tra- Taxi Driver and was so good that Scorsese expanded what had been a very small part to give him more screen time. Lauren Michaels, during the planning stages of what became Saturday Night Live, at one point asked Brooks to be the permanent host. <laughs> Brooks said no, and instead he started making the short films which aired throughout the first season of SNL. The format was a little different then, it was more of a variety show. There mm-hmm. was stuff like The Muppets were regulars mm-hmm. on SNL that first season. But Brooks was making these mockumentary-style short films in which he usually played versions of himself. And that, he has said, that was his self-taught film school that turned him into both an actor and a director. As the show's format changed, becoming less of a variety show, those films were phased out, but they indisputably influenced an entire generation of comics. Mm. And then, in 1979, he made Real Life. This was his first feature film. He actually tried to get someone else to direct it. He has said he does not enjoy directing, but he ended up directing it himself. It had very mixed reviews. Paul Slansky in the Washington Post called it the most original American comedy in recent memory. Gary Arnold, also in the Post, said Brooks's extraordinary first feature real life demonstrates a potential genius for movie comedy and is animated by a particularly fertile and subtle imagination. Roger Ebert, on the other hand, in what I think is one of his rare, complete misses, just didn't get it. <laughs> giving it one star. The movie's screenplay is so hopeless that nothing could have saved it, Ebert wrote. How do movies like this get financed? And the casting is certainly no help. Charles Grodin, as the typical American father, is so low-key, so mumbling, depressed and transparent that he's not funny. He's sad. The Brooks performance is something else, perhaps aware that he has no screenplay, no characters, and no ending. He leaves himself on screen far too long. As the director, he stars himself in an exercise in shameless self-indulgence. That's just Ebert just completely not understanding what is happening in Mm -hmm. this movie. Like, just not understanding Charles Grodin, for start. Like, if you write that about Charles Grodin, that is Charles Grodin's entire persona, and it's brilliant. (laughs) And Brooks being obnoxious and self-indulgent is the point, too. So, yeah, that that was too bad. But 
Brooks's curse his entire career has been to be ahead of his time. I would read that early on, he told Vanity Fair in 2013. He's ahead of his time. Then I learned that would in no way be a plus in this business. <laughs> I realized I should at least take it as a compliment because that's all it was good for. You don't have to be that to be an artist. You can be right smack dab in the middle of the herd. If you are, you'll be the richest. <laughs> So his his entire career has been a struggle. He's only made, I think, six movies. He's had trouble getting financing for all of them. None of them have been huge commercial successes, but he's brilliant, and every comedian working the business thinks he's brilliant. So I wanted to watch this movie in part because it's celebrating its 40th anniversary this month, and in part because I don't think enough people talk, know about this film. Okay. I won't claim that, you know, Brooks invented the mockumentary format. He didn't. There were plenty of others before this. I mean, The Beatles, A Hard Day's Night is technically a mockumentary. But I do think he was a pioneer and an influencer in this particular brand of sort of culturally self-aware, acerbically deadpan humor, the sort of humor that skewers itself. I don't know that we would have, for example, This is Spinal Tap, which was co-written and starring Harry Shearer, who also co-wrote this movie. Um, I don't think we would necessarily have the films of Christopher Guest, like Waiting for Guffman and Best in mm, Show. Mm -hmm. This is very much, you know, a, a forerunner of those films. And mostly, though, I think Real Life is an important film because it saw the future we are living in now, which is that reality TV era that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, last year, director Adam McKay posed, on, posed an open question on Twitter. Which movie was most ahead of its time and prophetic? Though several people picked the obvious answer of Patty Chayefsky's Network, which is on our list. We will get to it one of these days. Several people, including Patton Oswalt, named Real Life. I pick Real Life by Albert Brooks, Oswalt tweeted. Eerily predicts everyone willingly giving up privacy in exchange for a re-editing of their own reality. And it's hilarious. Chicago critic and film spotting co-host Josh Larson says, It's astonishing and a bit sad, really, how prescient real life was in retrospect. In 1979, Albert Brooks had already predicted and skewered the contrived inauthenticity of reality television with this biting mockumentary. And yet we've gone ahead and given over much of our entertainment hours to the format anyway. So my guess is you had probably never even heard of this movie, is that right? I had not. I have to admit my ignorance about a lot of sort of Albert Brooks's oeuvre. Oeuvre. I did like him in um, Drive. Yes. He was very funny and menacing. He was scary as hell. At the in same Drive. time, I really actually liked him in Drive. Um, <laughs> Which I think is one of those. I think that's one of those roles that sort of took this sort of edginess that's always yeah. been in his comedy and just right. put a twist on it. Where the sort of self-deprecating, I'm going to find the humor and why I'm pissed off, sort of go that it takes it puts the edge back on that. I'm yeah. like, no, I'm actually really pissed off. <laughs> So I, I really did enjoy him in that. And then I think I've seen bits and pieces of a film that he did where he's dead. Yes, Defending Your Life with okay. Meryl Streep. Right, and they're like Which watching was probably clips his biggest commercial success. Of their life, and I think having yes. to sort of defend choices that they made. But I know that I haven't seen the, the whole thing. Yeah. But, um, so, I actually yeah. really like that movie. Um, and I think, I suspect if we do this podcast long enough, we will get to more Albert Brooks movies. Okay. Um, Lost in America is a great one. Modern Romance is great. Lost in America, I don't know if, I bet you've seen the clip you being from Vegas, mm -hmm. of him trying to get his money back from a casino yes. owner. Yes. That's, it's a that's, hilarious scene. <laughs> yes. You can be the casino with a heart. 
put up the sign. <laughs> yeah, and the the casino owner's just like stone yeah, it's face. Gary Marshall, like, who's kind of amused at yeah, this guy, but he's like, but he's like nah, yeah, we're not going to This isn't going to happen, sir. Uh, yes, so I have seen that clip, yes. <laughs> okay, I don't know that there's anything else to say about this. Let's go watch Real Life. Okay. Um, for people out there who have not seen this film, it is available to rent on Amazon and iTunes and YouTube and most of the major streaming services, and I highly recommend you go watch it. Hi. What a breath of fresh air. Please come in. Here are your tests. Your living tests. Dr. and Mrs. Yeager, I'm in the communications business, and it's my job to get through to these people, but I don't think I'm doing very good at it. I don't think they understand the meaning of the word commitment, the word dedication. Maybe you can explain it to them. We want to stop. What? This is over. No. Look, I don't want to get into any more of your intellectual arguments. This is ruining our lives. This is not what we bargained for. Well, there was no bargaining. You applied, we accepted. Albert, the children are afraid to go to school. That's normal. Trust me. Look, I don't care what you think is normal. We no longer want to be involved in this project. That's final. That's this really it. This whole family's decision. Oh, well, I'll bet. I'll bet it was. I'm sure little Eric got a full oh, vote. We're huh? not going to discuss this. Come on. Okay, wait a second. No discussion. Just a few facts and loose ends, huh? $25,000. That's more than half your money was due on the completion of this picture and I don't think this is the end and I think you're going to have to go without the boat and the trailer you've been talking about for a couple of months and Lisa's braces I know something about teeth she may look all right now in three years she'll be an elephant girl these come right down to her waist and also if something god forbid really bad happens you have no insurance you're not in the Screen Actors Guild you have no coverage you'll get no benefits stop it with what they've been through we should just pay them and forget about it Okay, we'll forget about it. Go ahead, take the money. Go ahead. I want to get the family that I wanted to choose anyway. What was their name from the very beginning, the one I wanted? The Feltons. The Feltons, Wisconsin. That's the heart of this country. Here's what I say. We all take a week off. I'll get a high colonic. Then we'll come back with a new family, a bigger institute. And another studio. We're not spending another dime on this picture. You're nuts to want to do this again. Don't call me nuts. You're 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 nuts. I'm hanging up. You're nuts, you little. No, no, no. And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched Real Life. Nikia Matt Zoller cites in a piece on IndieWire says, One of the most neglected great comedies of the 1970s, real life is a mother load of culturally clairvoyant bits. Showing off his production team's state-of-the-art camera helmets, he brags, All picture and sound information is recorded digitally on these integrated circuit chips, some no larger than a child's fingernail. But real life doesn't just anticipate so-called reality shows and the technology that would be used to produce them. It investigates the tangled assumptions behind Dr. Documentary cinema itself. Nikia, what did you think of real life? I enjoyed it. I think I could see how maybe it was a bit ahead of its time. I mean, he invented the digital camera. Right. What do you want from him? But looking at it from where we sit now, it's it, it's obviously you know it was a, a prescient film that sort of predicted a lot of where our current pop culture is mm -hmm. from this idea of reality television that is not actually reality to the sort of digital film world to the idea of the documentary filmmaker becoming a character in their own documentary and sort of superseding whatever objectivity or, or, or again, sort of reality. Right. And also predicting sort of how our 
the sort of half hour sitcom would evolve. Like it actually, it reminded me a lot of the office and arrested development and like the first yes. season of parks and rec, where it is very much breaking that fourth wall yeah. and the recognition of the, of the camera, but still maintaining this sort of idea that it's reality. Um, and what happens when people are aware that they're being filmed and how does that change their behavior? Right. I mean, that's the fundamental question yeah. in the film is that is like, is it possible yeah. to film real life when the people are aware mm-hmm. that they're being filmed? And it really isn't. No. I mean, to do it, you would almost have to not tell the people... That they're being filmed. That they're being filmed. Yeah. It's the only way you could get anything approximating reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that right from the beginning in this movie. Day one, when they are being filmed, you see Charles Grodin keep looking at the camera right, and trying right. to put Very on... Very self-conscious. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay, so let's 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 go to the top of this. Um, the film begins with actually a quote from anthropologist Margaret Mead about the series we were talking about, the American Family mm-hmm. series, saying, It is, I believe, as significant as the invention of drama or the novel, a new way in which people can learn to look at life by seeing the real life of others interpreted by the camera. And again, that last little phrase there, interpreted, interpreted by yeah. the camera, it's important. turns out to be the key phrase. Mm-hmm. So so we open with with Brooks presenting this idea to it's the town right the town he's talking of, yeah, to at that point Phoenix, in that yeah. opening scene mm-hmm. yes so in Phoenix to town leaders the city councilmen and people gathered there mm-hmm. as this anthropological experiment that's very scientific and he's got scientific backers and he's got people from the National Institute of Human Behavior or some such thing mm-hmm. he talks later on about how he hopes to win both an Oscar and a Nobel and a Nobel Prize. Prize. Mm-hmm. So very lofty, very academic goals Mm -hmm. with this. Mm -hmm. And and then he breaks out into a song. Yes. (laughs) So we immediately get that tension of the sort of sociological integrity of the endeavor and the very real need to entertain um, and and sort of guarantee drama for the audience. Um, And so he breaks out into this very sort of Lyle Langley uh, in Marge versus the monorail sort of... thing where he's hyping them up as a town and like how cool is it that your town is going to be involved in this experiment and aren't you yeah. amazing for being for signing up you're going to be the star yeah and you know the scientists who he who, who he's invited to sort of validate this entire process are, are very uncomfortable with the, well one of them well, is very, one of them is yes. very uncomfortable one of them is pretty clearly in his yes. pocket yeah and the other one uh played by j.a preston this is Dr. Ted Cleary Mm -hmm. is not. No, he's horrified at the spectacle. (laughs) Yes. He is not amused. No. Not amused when Brooks opens the curtain to reveal the Merv Griffin Orchestra and he goes into this song. Talk to me about Albert Brooks, the actor, and Albert Brooks, the character. Um, well, Albert- He's, he is playing himself yeah. very much. He, you know, because he says people know him from Ed Sullivan in The Tonight Show. He was a comedian. It, it is just a slightly twisted version of himself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it takes some self-awareness and some courage to <laughs> sort of show this sort of funhouse mirror distortion of yourself mm-hmm. and really go all, like, there's no vanity Absolutely in this Absolutely none. At all. That, to me, even more than the reality TV stuff, even more than the prescient stuff, that, to me, is, is the genius of this film, mm-hmm. is just how willing he is to present himself as an asshole. Mm-hmm. And it's, he does not hold anything back on that. Mm-hmm. 
And especially when you consider, I mean, people did know him from The Tonight Show and stuff. This was his first movie, and this is him very much presenting himself as himself, and he lets himself be so incredibly dislikable. Yeah, no, he's not a good person. Um, (laughs) And he's all ego and all insecurity. Yeah. And neediness to be taken seriously as a quote-unquote scientist. (laughs) Yeah. He says at one point, if I had studied harder and been graded more fairly, I might have been some kind of scientist, he says. So it really is just sort of laying bare all of that ugly id that... You know, most people, the instinct is to sort of hide that away and present yourself in a better light. And, and in this role, he's just, no, we're just going to put it all out there. Yeah. It's going to be ugly. And it, it, there were, it was uncomfortable in some moments. And yeah. Yeah, it, it is pretty cringeworthy mm-hmm. in some places. Okay, so then we see the uh, the process of picking this family, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of the most... Well, no, the whole film is satirical, but yeah. this is a very more broadly satirical part where mm-hmm. they're going through testing and stuff. Yeah, so we get what seem to be very ridiculous a series of tests to find the sort of quintessential American family that is sort of average in every way, but also still star-worthy somehow. Right. All the families are white, which I'm sure did not escape your notice. No, I think there were when they showed the line where it was like we had however many families show up to apply, I think there were a few, a couple black families Uh, interspersed maybe one or two. But no, when we get down to it, it's 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 white it's a white family and i mean even to this day when we say typical american family many people envision a white family right so right so you, we just get these random sort of tests of a prospective quote-unquote father uh, reverse parking a car into an, an imaginary <laughs> garage to see if he would be able to sort of drive yeah. with cameramen in his car. We have this weird sort of face recognition test that's like, how will this person look on camera from every angle? It's right. just, they're all ridiculous. So, uh, but, but but already it's not about the actual experiment. No, it's about no, no. how good is this person going to look right. on camera? Right. Are they going to kill? us when they're driving in the car with us. It's got nothing to do with the supposed purpose Mm -hmm. of, of the movie. And then when it comes down to being between two families, the Jaegers, and I don't remember what... Some other... Some other bland white family. They both have two kids. Two parents, two kids. What sort of makes the decision is not uh, this sort of deep scientific analysis. It's, well, the Jaegers live in Arizona, and the other family lives in Wisconsin, and we don't want to go to Wisconsin because <laughs> right. it's cold. So You spend the winter in Wisconsin. We're going to go says. to Arizona with the Jaegers. <laughs> Which, you know, you understand. That's how I'm, you think I'm as well. I'm totally on board with that sort of scientific decision making. Yeah. Okay, so yes. So the final fam- the family selected is the Jaegers of Phoenix, Arizona which is Charles Grodin as the father, Warren, and Francis Lee McCain as the mother. Jeanette. Jeanette. Mm -hmm. Then they've got two kids. The kids don't actually feature into the film very much. Not a whole lot, no. The the daughter, at one point, does that that thing where she plays for airtime. Like, she's all dressed up in her confirmation dress, and she wants some camera time. And she's hitting on her father. Oh, God, that is a creepy... Yeah, yeah we should probably talk about that scene, yeah. shouldn't we? Okay, <laughs> we'll we'll get to that. I forgot about that scene. Okay, but Charles Grodin, always great. Yes. We watched him in uh, Midnight Run. We did. Last year. Mm-hmm. Pretty much perfect for this, as just sort of the dead ban common every man who's slowly going insane mm-hmm. through this process. Mm-hmm. The experiment kind of gets off to a rocky start right from the beginning, right from day one. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so Albert Brooks has sent the family away for a uh, trip to Hawaii, I believe, mm-hmm. while he gets set up in the house directly across the street from where they live. And as soon as the family lands, Albert and the camera crew are sort of there and ready to sort of start. And it's clear that the family is not ready to <laughs> sort of engage. It. Like, they're tired and jet lagged and they just sort of want to go home and have some time to decompress. But Albert Brooks is sort of like, this is the, you know, the stuff of life and we need to get right. it on camera. He, throughout this film, he says nothing can go wrong, right? Because whatever happens is it real is life. Real life, and, and so it happens. But right. without understanding that, yes, it's real life happening in reaction to what you're doing. <laughs> so we, you know, pick up with the family at home after this long trip, and they're at the dinner table, sort of eating pizza. And Charles Grodin is desperately trying <laughs> to sort of paint this Rockwell photo yeah. of his family. He's hyper aware of the camera. Very, very aware. These very, ridiculous yeah. robot head cameras. Yeah. Uh, But his wife is struggling with an IUD that is not sitting well with her and she's bleeding and she's cramping and she's pissed off and is not at all interested in playing for the camera. I, I was surprised how quickly they get the, the film gets into that. Mm-hmm. Like, you would think there would be, like, a few days of everybody on board. Now, the mother, right from the start, is like, fuck this yeah, shit. No, I am yeah. not in the mood for this crap. Yeah. As someone with cramping and all of the, I can tell you that, no, get the fuck out of my face. I'm not going to, I'm not doing it, so. And, and she, and she's like... A, you know, accusing her husband, your movie, she calls it. Right, like right. She never wanted anything to do with this. And yeah, Groden is phony. He's mm-hmm. just already... Asking for retakes. Yeah, asking, can we cut that out? <laughs> like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna talk about your her IUD on camera, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Brooks is just very, very pleasant, very friendly, very, you know, encouraging, but he's not going to <laughs> let them get away with anything, cutting no. anything out. No. That's all. Yes. So I think it's after the dinner that we sort of have our first market meeting, I guess we would call it, um, (laughs) with both studio folks and the scientists. (laughs) Right. Uh, Who are pretty clearly all at cross purposes Right. And so we have this conversation about the father, about Charles Grodin's character coming off unsympathetic. Yeah, day one. Day one, they're already... Do we need to course correct this? Market testing him. Is the audience going to react poorly to him? And Albert Brooks is desperately trying to recast it as, no, he's not unsympathetic. We need to pitch him as he's he's threatened by, you know, what he thinks he needs to be doing as a man in the household. And all of a sudden, it's very complex. Does he like himself? Does he not like himself? He's a conflicted hero. And he just keeps repeating it. And so he's obviously already, outside of whatever quote-unquote reality is, he's already created a narrative that he is trying to advance through this family. And And, his own agenda, essentially. And just, I mean, Brooks is just, throughout this entire movie, just constantly dancing, trying to make this work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, his increasing desperation is just, to me, just fundamentally funny. As he just gets, whatever comes up, he's just trying to spin it. He's just trying to make it work. Work. He's trying to tell everybody that this is working when right from the beginning it's clearly it's not, not working. working. Right. Yeah. And immediately Jeanette wants to leave and she does. And yeah. just <laughs> she's like, I need some time alone. He's like, Yeah, of course. Great. Can, Can we, we come send the camera you? with you? And she's like, No, no, I actually want to be alone, alone. And so he sort of lets her go. But it's obvious that it was sort of, you know, what he sees to be sort of a missed opportunity for them. But he was glad because at the very least he was able to get her storming angrily out of the house, which it will make for good TV. So <laughs> Right. And I, I think I think it's I think it's that same day or the next day that we get the scene you 
you were talking about with the daughter. Yeah, so, you know, the mom has left the house. The dad is tap dancing for the cameras. Um, yeah, and- I like the, when he, he's in the kitchen by himself mm-hmm. and he's narrating. Yeah. He's like, okay, I'm gonna make some I think I'm going to make some coffee. I'm going to make some eggs. <laughs> and then he's he like pulls the knob off the stove and he sort of puts it back really self-consciously. <laughs> and it's just, it's a, he's, Charles Grodin is actually really wonderful in this. Because yeah. um, there's that sort of seething, just sort of mental breakdown right under the surface (laughs) there. But so his daughter, you know, recognizing that there's a moment for her, she's dressed up in her confirmation dress and she's sort of mugging in front of a mirror and she's like, you know, this is, I'm going to be a star and I'm going to be famous and we're going to, you know, basically do lines with me, dad. Right. And so she becomes essentially her mother. Like he, she starts to play out the part of the woman of the house and starts to say, you know, oh, touch me and oh, yeah, hold kiss me, me, kiss dad, me, daddy. Kiss me, father. And he is very uncomfortable. <laughs> With this happening in front of the camera. Because it's creepy as it's shit. It's creepy as shit. And he tries to, like, <laughs> nicely get her to, like, stop doing it. But she's very insistent on on, on sort of playing this part. <laughs> and then there's a crack in the surface where he says, do you want to get hit? And, like, <laughs> sort of <laughs> pushes her off and sort of, you know, gets her. And then that's when he has his little moment alone in the kitchen where he's just like, I'm not quite sure how to behave now that that's just happened. How do I sort of get this back on track? But it is it is also, I mean, talk about the prescience of this film. When we were talking about reality TV shows at the beginning, we were talking about the people who were just, like, desperate for airtime mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and willing to make fools of themselves and willing to create drama just for the sake of getting a little screen time. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what she's doing here. Yep. There's a hole in casting. The mom left, so there needs to be a new mom. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, then the mom comes back with a, a slightly different attitude. Yeah, all of a sudden she's in love with Albert Brooks. She's she's sort of imprinted onto him really quickly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, basically asks to meet him alone. But, of course, there's no alone without the cameras. So all this is right. happening in front of the cameras. He says, this is as alone as right. I get. Uh, and she's basically... Which is, a, it's actually a really self-aware, witty mm-hmm. thing to say. He's a Hollywood guy. He's yep. like, I'm always on. This is as alone this as I get. Um, there is no actual intimacy and she basically sort of says that he is the person that she is relying on she feels sort of safe with him you know with everything that's going on with warren and the family and then she invites him to go to <laughs> as a present her gyne- to make, it to up, make to up for the fact that she left the house she <laughs> she sort of gives him a gift and that gift is access to uh her gynecological appointment <laughs> the next day to get her iud removed which she hasn't told Warren, her husband, that she's doing. And then she... Now, now to Brooks's credit, at this point, he, he resists her advances. Yes. She's like, she's like, you're so sensitive. And he's like, no, I'm very shallow. <laughs> I'm like, look at this. It's just skin deep. It's, you think I'm charming and I'm not. But she kisses him. Yeah. And he receives that grudgingly and mm-hmm. sort of is wiping off his mouth. And he's just like, you know, did you see that? I didn't. She did that. And I'm right. not. Like, we're trying to keep it. In. And like you said, he's already becoming part of the story. Yes. You can almost see him being like, how do I edit around this? Right. I can't. Now I'm part of it. Right. So we are we go to the gynecologist <laughs> uh, with Jeanette. And we get this weird... <laughs> character within a character moment where it happens to be that her current gynecologist was actually in another news story about being a baby broker selling babies. I I had trouble with the 60 minutes people, he says. (laughs) So, is this like, so... A real person had already become a character from this other news thing and is now 
a character in this right. thing and it so it's a really sort of interesting <laughs> moment there. and Brooke, brooks is thrilled he's because he's, he's like, like he's like i want this for, it's like brad pitt just showed up on your set like it was just oh we got this guy he's now. like i remember you you were having baby slave you were the baby broker so it's a wonderful just little moment of like how again real people become quote-unquote celebrities in real life yeah and um, we're not necessarily happy about not that. necessarily happy about it and that that particularly now with technology and we can just Google everything and all that shit just comes back up. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's harder to distance yourself from something like being a baby broker. <laughs> so I thought that was a great little moment. Okay. So yeah, he, he, he doesn't get the gynecological appointment because no, the guy, throws but he does out. get the baby broker. Yeah. <laughs> So this is only this is only like day six in yeah. the experiment. M- Mrs. Yeager's mother or grandmother has a stroke or something, and she calls Brooks before she calls her husband to mm-hmm. tell him about this. This raises the concern of Ted Cleary, the mm-hmm. the scientist mm-hmm. who comes to express. He, he sort of appears in Albert's in <laughs> Albert's bedroom <laughs> to express his concerns, telling him to stay out of their lives, basically. Mm-hmm. And then they get into a little a little confrontation. They do. Yeah, I think it's I think it starts when uh, Brooks accuses him of just being uncomfortable being in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, as a black. He man. says he says because you're the only, and then he just sort of lets that sentence mm-hmm. trail off there. Trail off there. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Cleary immediately picks up on what he's saying and says something to the effect of. You are more uncomfortable around black people than any <laughs> white man I have ever met. Yes. They have actually what is, I think, a really wonderful little exchange there um, where Albert Brooks does the defensive white person thing where he sort of gets up in arms yeah. at the insinuation that he's uncomfortable around black people and basically says, you know, I know that you people are going to be ruling the earth at some point And, you know. Um, he's basically doing the I love black people. Right. Well, right. Yeah. So, yeah. So their relationship is strain yes and ted's warnings go unheeded about how brooks is interfering with these lives as we see in the next scene at the vet's office yeah so he and uh dr yeager go on what is a rare emergency call yeah for and again he's very excited that there's a veterinary emergency he can film something happening and so we get this sort of extended scene of (laughs) a horse being prepped for surgery and Warren is very, again, very obviously very conscious of the cameras. Um, and he's trying to sort of do everything right and sort of check all the boxes of like, okay, have we checked the pulse? Did we administer the anesthesia? You know, did we do this? Did we do this? Mm-hmm. And trying to sort of run the room and look competent. And in doing so, he makes a mistake of ordering two dosage, like double the dosage of anesthesia <laughs> right. that he was supposed to, immediately killing the horse. And it's great because the, the nurse catches it. Yes. But she also looks at the cameras. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, "Doctor, are you sure you right. you want that?" And she knows it's wrong. But then she looks at the cameras, right, and, and doesn't like, want to correct him. I'm not going to correct him in front of the cameras. Yeah. I'm, you know, <laughs> she's nervous too. Mm-hmm. So it just it just happens. And they kill that animal. <laughs> they kill that horse. 
And it's a sad moment. Because <laughs> we just sort of listen to the life slowly leave his body. And there is not, I'll, I think I said this when we watched Midnight Run, I will say it again. There is not someone who underplays better than Charles Grodin. Mm, mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't do a big crushed thing. No. He is crushed. Yeah. He's crestfallen. He's terrified he's going to lose his business and all of his customers. But he doesn't overplay it. It's no. He's just brilliant. It's very quiet, but it is, you, he looks at the camera and you can see his eyes just terrified <laughs> at what just happened and what that will mean for his career and he goes sort of goes to Albert and says can, can I talk to you <laughs> privately about what just happened in here and then we get again another instance of him sort of wanting to reshoot life right, right. it's just like is there a way that we can not show that footage in there <laughs> Because it is going to threaten my livelihood as yeah. a vet. Like, nobody's going to want to go to the vet that kills a damn horse. <laughs> and again, Brooks is just dancing. Right. He's, he's like, I it's think gonna be you're fine. overreacting. It's going to be fine. I think you showed real concern in People there. People don't even think about stuff like that when they pick a vet. <laughs> People make mistakes. It's not a big deal. I think they'll like you yeah. for it. <laughs> And Groan's just like, I, I just don't think people are that understanding when it comes to their pets. So the hits just keep on coming for the yeah. Jaeger family. Yeah. The grandmother dies uh, from complications of the stroke. Yeah. And the family is just sort of crestfallen. And we get another great scene with Charles Grodin at the funeral for the grandmother <laughs> where, you know, as the the reverend is sort of reading the scripture and saying final words, he's busy sort of whispering to his wife about the fact that this footage of him killing this horse is going to be out there and we really need to sort of deal with this. And she's kind of like, I'm trying to grieve my grandmother who is right here in this yeah. casket here in front of us. Um, the minister is shushing them. Right. So again, we have like this breakdown of rea- like reality is now being deeply informed by this process of being filmed mm-hmm. and it's changing and warping everything. Mm-hmm. And then the the result of that is basically everybody, particularly Charles Grodin, just sort of shuts down. Yeah. And days go by in which, you know. No one talks. No one talks. Charles Grodin sleeps 18 hours a day. Brooks is getting no usable footage, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the real life he wanted. Well, it gets so desperate that he then calls Jeanette and he's like, you want to go to dinner? Yeah, you still uh, still want to maybe get Just together? Just to try to get some drama out of the situation. And she's like, no thanks. And when that doesn't work, he... Comes, he dresses up as a clown. He's going to go over and just be a clown, which is kind of a good metaphor for his entire approach to this mm-hmm. thing. Like, as long as I just keep being funny and, you know, talking, I can I can make this okay. Mm-hmm. And I think this is about the time when Groden says, I feel like I'm having a nervous break. Yeah, it's a great moment. <laughs> it really is. But and also, like, recognizing... The shame in that moment for Albert mm-hmm. Brooks of like having to put back on the the clown suit and sort of step out of this sort of scientific role that he really wants to play, mm-hmm. and now you're back just being a regular actor, a quote unquote clown, yeah. just so that you can sort of get to what you need. And in such desperation that he hears Charles Grodin say something like, "I think I'm having a nervous <laughs> breakdown," and again his instinct is to say, "No, no, it's fine. We're just gonna keep going." <laughs> Because this has to work, because yeah. I cannot be a clown forever. <laughs> and now the scientists are very concerned. They've been doing pee tests. <laughs> been doing urinalysis tests. And body temperature tests and voice imaging tests. And, and all of the family shit is off from when they first started. <laughs> so it is obvious that, you know, there is an observer effect 
at work here that yeah. just sort of in in their surveillance of this family, the family is being changed. And yeah. so you're getting what I think he called sort of false reality. But all that Albert Brooks sort of hears in that conversation is that he looked fat in one of the scenes. <laughs> And so he hears all this about the, how sort of traumatized the family is. Right. He's like, how but, this family is, right. you know. <laughs> Deeply changed yeah. by this experience. And he's like, right, but did you say that I looked fat in one scene? <laughs> and I like, really hyper-focused on how he looked. So again, prioritizing himself in the narrative of what's supposed to be the story yeah. of this family. And, and then meanwhile, we have this new character of the studio boss who's mm-hmm. on speakerphone. Who just wants who to Who doesn't understand this entire project. Robert Redford or somebody else to do something <laughs> because, like, why are we talking about people who aren't actually Hollywood stars? Nobody wants to see real life. They get the news for free. And this is when uh, Dr. Cleary sort of has his fill and is sort of done with the buffoonery in the guise of science. And it's just like, I'm leaving. And he just walks off. Yeah. Um, after he and Albert Brooks have another just sort of great exchange of awkwardness and racialized tension. Yeah. And um, it's really because, like, there are, there's some interesting stuff happening there of just, like, a white man and black man talking. And the fact that Dr. Cleary is of a status and space of respect and privilege that Albert Brooks desperately wants to get to mm-hmm. as an actor. But he can't because he is. He is not a scientist. He is he you know lacks the rigor. <laughs> so that's their exchanges in this film are actually really interesting to me. Yeah, Cleary Cleary is just openly hostile mm-hmm. at this point, mm-hmm. and Brooks is still trying to be endearing, yeah. trying to get this guy to like him. You know, he's like, I think you'd be surprised at how alike we are. <laughs> and Cleary says, I'd be more than surprised. I'd be suicidal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. Cleary's Cleary's out now. He's he's done done with his bullshit project Mm -hmm. which becomes more bullshit by the minute because the next thing we see and i think it's a classic i think it's one of the best scenes in this movie is the montage yes the montage you can make anything look beautiful and wonderful (laughs) with slow motion and a good soundtrack that's all you need So we get a montage of the family running to an amusement park, running to the zoo, and everyone is smiling, and they're riding a roller coaster, and it's all lovely, and everyone's holding hands, and yeah, it's a it's a pretty uh, disgusting display. Smile, the Mr. and Mrs. Yeager smiling and kissing at the dry cleaners, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like it is so edited reality, manufactured, yeah. yeah. And that's like twenty days worth of shooting because we're we're suddenly up to like day forty six. Yeah, and that's all we've seen of that. So mm-hmm. whatever else was happening, he's distilled it down to this happy family montage. Right, and that is fine until the article comes out. Yes, Dr. Cleary releases a tell-all book, um, and it picks up a little bit of traction in the local newspapers. Because <laughs> it uses terms like mind control and psychological rape. Yes, which, that's a, that's a that's a strong one there. And so that sort of adds another layer of the funhouse mirror, right, of like, they become sort of freak shows in their own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are interested in them as sort of victims of this experiment and how it has warped the family. And and now they have, you know, news cameras coming to the house. (laughs) Saying, can 
can we just film you having breakfast? Can you just and do Groden breakfast says, again? Well, they're already filming us having <laughs> breakfast. So then it's like life as copywritten material yeah. like, that you can't write. And we and we see the falsity of the news mm-hmm. as well because mm-hmm. the news guys like, oh well, maybe after they film you having breakfast, you can like have pretend breakfast to have again, another breakfast and we can film that and let us film mm-hmm. that. <laughs> and admitting before they are confronted with Albert Brooks that it really is just a puff piece. Like they weren't, it wasn't going to be a big deal. But then after Albert Brooks sort of shoves him out of the house, they're like, okay, now it's a real story and we're going to really be talking about this. And so we see the family essentially be sort of accosted all across their town and they go to the movies and the cameras are waiting. They're coming from the grocery stores and the cameras are waiting and... and Additional cameras. These are the news cameras. news cameras. In addition to the cameras that have been following To their regular cameras. And that's essentially sort of what breaks them. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yes. Then we have another big meeting with the studio head Mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm. scientists. And this is where they say that these people are very close to complete personality disintegration. Yes. And the studio head says, this thing is over. It's failed. You've failed, you schmuck. And yeah, and so Warren and Jeanette quit. Yes, they they burst into this meeting and and Albert Brooks is like, ask them. They want to continue. Like, we want to quit. Like, we, we want to stop. We've talked. <laughs> this is not something we want to be the doing The whole family anymore. is talked. We, we just want to stop. We can't take this anymore. Mm-hmm. This is ruining our lives. <laughs> and, and Brooks is just so desperate at this point and he's offering them more money groveling he, at their feet he's he's saying you know we're, we're not going to pay you the rest of the money we mm-hmm. owe you i've seen your kids teeth they're gonna need orthodontists <laughs> think about the future and the studio head is like just paying whatever just, we owe right. them and what they've been through we should just pay clean them. our hands of this <laughs> and, and 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 brooks again without a shred of vanity is just begging mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. literally on his knees saying I want to be there for Thanksgiving. I want to be there for Christmas. He didn't get Christmas. any of the good holidays. He didn't get any footage of Christmas. I didn't get any birthdays. Yeah. And then it's uh and then it's just him alone with one of the cameramen with mm-hmm. this stupid robot head Hauser, on yeah. in a bathroom mm-hmm. talking about how this all went wrong. And he has a moment of self-awareness where he says, "I ruined their lives. Mm. I didn't mean to do it." He says, <laughs> He says, why did I pick reality out of all subjects? I don't know anything about reality. (laughs) Again, just this Hollywood phony who knows he's Hollywood phony. And that's just his entire existence. He says something like, everyone loves fake. And so like, still not quite understanding why the fact that it is somehow manufactured would be a problem. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was I was reading, a, they had a roundtable discussion on the Dissolve, the late lamented Dissolve, about this film. Mm-hmm. And Keith Phipps made a good point. He said, he said, you know, we talk a lot about how this film was prescient, but it's also a film of its time. And he was talking about what was happening in Hollywood at that point, mm-hmm. that, you know, this was the late 70s. This is right after Jaws and Star Wars basically changed Hollywood right. forever. Right. You know, moving away from reality, moving away from these gritty dramas towards blockbuster, blockbusters, yeah. sci-fi adventure, fakery, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I think that's an excellent point because that's what happens at the end of this movie. Mm. Whatever honorable intentions he ha- 
bad, and they weren't terribly honorable <laughs> no, to they, start they with. Were not. But it was an interesting idea. Then he's like, "We can end this fake. <laughs> we can get give the people what they want. Give them the big explosion." And he talks about Jaws and Star Wars, mm-hmm. and he says, "You know." What's the biggest movie of all time? Star Wars. How does it end? They blow up a planet. Well, and it lands on Gone with the Wind. So how does <laughs> right. Gone with the Wind end with a, a fire? So, okay. That's how we're doing it. Well, and there's a funny little moment between he, him and the camera operator... <laughs> Who's again is wearing that ridiculous <laughs> camera over his head? And I think I think I I think that was Harry Shearer in in the camera mm-hmm. at that point playing the cameraman. So who, who co-wrote this movie? And yeah, they're going through the films, and he's like, "What's the biggest movie of all time?" And it's Jaws or Star Wars, and he's yeah. like, "What's the third biggest?" And it's Gone with the Wind. And the cameraman admits that he hasn't seen Gone with the Wind. <laughs> and Albert Brooks has this moment of, "It's one of the biggest films ever made in history. You haven't you seen haven't Gone seen with Gone the Wind, the- which I had not also seen Gone with the Wind." Um, <laughs> but it's this. If you work in this industry, right. maybe you how, should see Gone with the Wind. How have you not seen Gone with the Wind? But so that this 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 thinking that these films sort of dominate culture in that way, there are still plenty of people that they don't touch, you know, like that do mm-hmm. walk around. Like, I have no connection to Gone with the Wind. But anyway, the point is that it inspires him to set the <laughs> Jaeger's home on fire so they can sort of end... And with a bang there. Which he does. Yeah. And they have to rescue the children and flee the house. And he's standing outside just thrilled. It's kind of a dark ending. <laughs> it's a very dark ending. <laughs> because he starts the fire knowing that everyone is still in the house. Yeah. And particularly the children. <laughs> and he is gleeful in setting this fire. Like, Humor, pathos, yes. tragedy, and it's real. Their house yes. is really the burning. The house is really burning. <laughs> and it is. And it is, again, 20 years earlier, just the perfect metaphor for what happens on reality mm-hmm. TV shows, where it's like, okay, we gotta we gotta set something on fire. We but you're also create... watching someone have a mental breakdown. Right. Like he's gone crazy. <laughs> and that is the end of the movie. We get a little after note saying that, you know, the Yeager's house was rebuilt. They were paid with their money. With a tennis court. Yes. <laughs> they yeah. were paid their money. And there's it's a and I I like that last note because it it sort of implies that somehow Albert Brooks was still in charge of this mm-hmm. because it, the last thing the last line of that scroll across the screen is only historians will ever know just how much closer to reality <laughs> this motion picture has brought us <laughs> as though this is still some important sociological right. experiment. Okay, so what's what's the final verdict on real life? <laughs> it was better than real life. <laughs> It was definitely a movie ahead of its time, but I thought it was, you know, really well done, really smart, very funny, and somehow a vanity project with no vanity. Mm-hmm. Right. I enjoyed it. Okay. That's an accomplishment. Sure. So what So what does it tell us about filming reality? That that's not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Observing the thing changes the thing, so. So is this reality, what we do here every week? Are we Are we capturing our authentic selves on the microphone, or is it? changing us i think i'm probably nicer to you on the podcast than i am in real life so that's a problem isn't it you should be concerned i i, I feel like i might be having a <laughs> i want to stop <laughs> we just want to stop <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Nikia, I was looking back at our schedule and realizing that it was just about exactly a year ago 
that we last watched a James Bond movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was 1964's Goldfinger, which introduced you to the OG 007, Sean Connery. And I, and I think it's time you met another James Bond. I feel like there was an understanding that I wouldn't be doing any more James Bond films. No, in fact, I think when we did that episode, we, we discussed, actually, that we would have to watch at least a couple more. We absolutely did not discuss that. <laughs> you may have had that discussion with yourself, but I distinctly remember saying I was done with James you, Bond. You loved Goldfinger. I hated Goldfinger. And I don't know that I have a whole lot more to say <laughs> about British imperialism, so... Well, this is, this is a whole different James Bond, though. Uh, we are going to be watching Roger Moore take over the role in 1973's Live and Let Die. You know, there are, there are I think, 24 Bond films to date, so if we do one a year, we should be I should be able to catch you up on this franchise, you know, before I die. That's a sad goal for your life. <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm committed to it, though. You're okay. Live and Let Die, and in fact, the entire Bond library is available on Netflix. So if, like Nakia, you haven't seen it, and if, unlike Nakia, you want to, you can watch it there. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at freerangecritic, leave us a review on iTunes, or send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. Uh, can we talk about some of the trashier stuff you watch? Do I watch trashier stuff? Uh, I watch botched. You watch botched. That's what you're talking about. Okay, so here's the thing with botched. <laughs> and I think for a while you watched, I don't know what the shows exactly were, but they were somewhere in that Teen Mom. Did I watch Teen kinda Mom? Kind of life. I don't know that I ever did thing. Teen Mom. I think you did. All right. I don't think I did. I was more. I have a thing where, despite not liking gore, I have the tendency to pick up on reality shows that sort of traffic in that. <laughs> sort of so, about what was body that? mutilation. Yeah, what was it? Um, Scarred. Scarred, yes. <laughs> you loved, so fucking you terrible. You loved that show. It was <laughs> short-lived. <laughs> but it was basically just, like, internet videos of people beefing it off of skateboards <laughs> and just doing stunts. And then it's like, and like, I really felt bad going down this pike, but I was like, I'm just going to get this one last run in. And, yeah. you, and then it's and then like, just mangling your kneecap bodies. is outside of your body. I mean, that show, I, th- I don't know how many episodes they made, but it wasn't on long. It wasn't I'm sure long, it was I'm, because it was lawsuits waiting to Oh, happen. hell yes. Like, it was one of those ones that had the disclaimer of like, don't try anything you see on this show. <laughs> right. But it was, there was something about it that was irresistible to me. Like, I loved watching people, like... <laughs> What's inside is outside now. <laughs> and that bone is bending right? in a direction it is <laughs> not supposed to go. So it was that one. It was that weird ass show, A Thousand Ways to Die. We watched oh, a significant Jesus. amount of that. <laughs> that wasn't even, that's not even reality. That was like recreations was so of great. urban legends. But the recreations stuff. were terrible, and all of the deaths were completely ridiculous. <laughs> Um, and then botched, which is watching plastic surgery. I don't know what that is. Plastic surgery gone wrong. Right. And so you can see them like cutting in, into people. But I don't, I really don't know where that fascination comes from, but I do have that really bad habit.